as as a member of the appointments and promotions committee here at Boston University School of Public Health, w- w- look at him! Look at him! Name w- drop. Or we we d- <laughs> prestige <laughs> dropping. Shall I cross well, your palm with silver bone. <laughs> <laughs> What's your price? <laughs> Welcome again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am watching a Fellini film. You guys fans? Oh my God, totally confusing. I don't, I've never, Science I, is so much easier than I've Fellini. I've always wanted oh, to understand Fellini. one, I but I, I can't get them at all. Anyway, I'm Matt Fox, Professor of Epidemiology and Global Health, and I'm here with Don Thea and Chris Gill from the Department of Global Health. Hello. And we are here in the Boston University Godly Studio. So guys, I've got some... Thing amazing to tell you guys about this week. Really? You, you want to know what it is? I do. I want to be amazed. It is the Population Health Exchange. Oh, seriously? Yeah, you're going to love this. I've been reading about that. Yeah, so this is the Boston University School of Public Health Resource Hub. Hub. Resource Hub for Lifelong Learning. That's like Boston. Oh, yeah. I, do you know why Boston is called the Hub? Because it is. Most <laughs> of us don't know. And I do uh, know, but I forgot. Oliver Wendell Holmes referred to Boston, specifically not Boston, but the capital, the state house as the hub of the universe. Oh, that's right. And that oh, is where it came from. Why would he say that? Because it was at the time. Because uh, we are the, I'm not going to say anything. Uh, anyway, did I mention uh, the Population Health Exchange at all? No. It's but a hub for lifelong learning. I heard about this yeah, on what'd a you, website. What'd you hear? It was on the populationhealthexchange.org website. PopulationHealthExchange.org website. And you know what else you can find at that website? All sorts of information about lifelong learning, man. Including this podcast. Yeah. Uh, um, and all, all over 20 episodes now. 23 or 4. This is 24. This will be number 24, it. which is like, oh, which God, is like a like, We're coming up to year one, aren't we? Have we passed year one? We have not passed year one We're yet. coming up on year one. Uh, so another reminder, if you could go ahead and give us a rating on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, whatever it is that you use to get your... Podcast. So now let's move on to the show. Okay. So today, in our first segment, which is the Journal Club segment, we are going to talk about a study that tested the effectiveness of symbiotics, closely related to probiotics, but not the same, to prevent sepsis in neonates. In the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we're going to talk about whether scientific productivity has changed over time or whether it's actually stayed the same. And then in our third segment, which is our Amazing and Amusing, we are going to get into some of the things that have us giggling or just amazed. And from there, we'll just see if I can get through it. So let's get into segment one. Segment one, we're going to get into this article that looked at the effectiveness of symbiotics for prevention of sepsis in rural India. The study was published in the prestigious journal Nature with first author uh, Pinaki Pinagra of the Department of Epidemiology in the Center for Global Health and Development at the College of Public Health at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Did I get that all right? I think you did. And the study was done in 2017. So this was one that Don found and thought it would be good to look at. So um, it's not a brand new study, but it was entitled A Randomized Symbiotic Trial to Prevent Sepsis Among Infants in Rural India. So let me give you some headlines on this one from 2017. So the New York Times said, How to Prevent Deadly Infection in Babies? Good bacteria. National Public Radio said probiotic bacteria could protect newborns from deadly infection. Business Insider Singapore says a new kind of probiotic could change the $38 billion market by relying on real science and Cameron Diaz. Cameron Diaz, the actress? Yeah. Huh? I'm not, I, I, I 
didn't fully read the uh, the title clearly before I put that one in there. Get back and to us on that, Matt. The Scientist magazine says seeding the gut microbiome prevents sepsis in infants. So Don, give it to us okay. without grunting. Okay. Can you um, give it to us? What, what, what happened right. here? A little bit of background. Neonatal sepsis is really important. It's um, not very common, but it's deadly. When kids get it, it's uh, got about a 60% case fatality rate. Can I just ask you, what is sepsis before you... Sepsis is um, bacteria in the blood. Bacteria in the blood. Right. Causing an inflammatory reaction leading to... Right. Shock. Multi-system organ failure and death. Right. Okay. So uh, I think it's important to say that over the course of the last... 30 years, we've made incredible strides in decreasing child mortality globally, um, but more so in the older children than in the young ones. And the young ones t- um, are harder to treat. Um, they're harder to identify. It's harder to uh, know when a child is septic or has a serious bacterial infection. Um, and they're harder t- to, to, to treat when they do. They tend to get more nasty organisms also. Um, so what this study attempted to do was to try to see if, in fact, you could prevent the development of sepsis in these very young kids using this um, symbiotic. And a symbiotic is really a combination of the probiotic, which is a benign bacterial organism, mm-hmm. um, along with an oligosaccharide. Uh, and their reasoning was that if you put the oligosaccharide, which is a sugar that the um, that the bacterial organism eats to sustain sustain itself, but which we cannot. And in fact, there are a whole bunch of oligosaccharides like the one that they put in these particular pills that exist in breast milk. And part of the benefit of breast milk is to really um, alter um, in a beneficial way the microbiome of a child who has uh, a developing immune system. Mm -hmm. So their their reasoning was... um, I think fairly, you know, fairly understandable. Um, wait, 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 hang on. Is it though? Because wh- why do we think this would prevent sepsis specifically? Because sepsis in children um, develops when the organisms in the gut cross the gut, they call it translocation, and get into the blood and then circulate in the blood. And they're not obviously not supposed to be in the blood. And that's that's a sort of the cascade of, of difficulty that they have. And when a baby is born, they're depending, uh, also depending on how they're born. And there's some evidence to suggest that a baby that is born vaginally as opposed through C-section, they're colonized with better bacteria. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. And, and that, that may have an and effect. And so we're trying to prevent the takeover of the gut by harmful bacteria that could then get by into the blood. crowding out the harmful bacteria Got with it. these good bacteria. So um, what there have been a number of other studies that have looked at this, but they've um, not been good because there were imprecise outcome measures, there were no blood cultures, and they were small. So these authors mounted a community-based, double-blind, individually randomized trial in 149 Indian vi- villages where they gave this symbiotic orally for seven days, starting on day two through four of life. Um, the follow-up was daily at home. Um, the inclusion criteria were children who were over 2,000 grams of essentially normal birth weight and where breast, breastfeeding had uh, begun within 24 hours. The exclusion criteria, however, were extensive. And there were a whole bunch of exclusion criteria um, such as gestational age being less than 35 weeks, low birth weight, not able to tolerate oral feeds, um, the infant didn't cry immediately after birth, um, uh, mothers had fever, um, or there was suspected sepsis at the time where the infant was on antibiotics. So there were a lot of, of conditions for which children were not entered into the study, which I think we'll come back to, but I think is significant. Okay. Uh-huh. Because these are all things that 
are kind of markers of kids who are pretty sick already. Or, or, or risk factors for the development of sepsis. Or may even have sepsis. Correct, correct. So they screened 7,000 children, they enrolled 4,556, and they followed them for 60 days. Um, community health workers identified 704 kids with probable serious bacterial infection um, who were sent to the health facility where an evaluation was done by a pediatrician to uh, establish that, in fact, this PSBI, probable serious bacterial infection, was, in fact, um, um, confirmed. Um, they... Only 3 and 14% respectively of the children who were referred were in the first two weeks of life. And we'll come back to that because I think, uh, I think that that's important. The bulk of the kids um, who um, developed the outcome were in the third and fourth week of life. And of the uh, 319 um, uh, episodes of PSBI, which were established by the pediatricians using fairly strict WHO criteria, were all treated with IV antibiotics for five days. 189 were not admitted to the hospital, but given oral antibiotics and treated as outpatients. They did blood cultures on 182 out of 319. Um, they didn't do it for children who presented with what appeared to be lower respiratory tract infection. The outcome was a combination outcome of sepsis and death. Um, and, and sepsis the, was defined in a very particular way, as I recall. This. Yeah, yeah. It was po positive blood culture. Um, yeah, they had three tiers. It was like confirmed sepsis, which they had a right. blood culture that grew something. Right. And then they had suspected sepsis where they suspect, you know, they, the blood culture didn't grow anything. And then the third one was lower respiratory tract infection where they didn't even try to do a blood culture. Right, which technically is not necessarily sepsis. Right. Um, so what, they, what did they find? They found a 40% reduction in the combined outcome, which is a large, large reduction in, um, in either sepsis or death. But the, the caveat is just what Chris said, was that the, um, the definition of sepsis is a little bit different. Uh, not a not not a terribly hard outcome. And forty percent down from what? That's I mean the the question I always want to know is, you know, is this a forty percent reduction off of a common outcome nine or a rare outcome? Nine percent in placebo and five point four percent. So it's the, meaningful in, when you're talking about something so severe, right? Um, so culture positive and culture negative sepsis both decreased. Um, and the uh, relative risk, the reduction, was about 80% in kids who had, uh, who, who, uh, had a positive blood culture. Um, there was a, also a 34% reduction in lower respiratory tract infection. And they also noted that local infections, skin infections and other middle ear infections, also were reduced as a result of this intervention. There were no appreciable adverse events. Um, there was 4% loss to follow-up. Um, there was a little bit of, of imbalance um, at the beginning. Not but much, they, though. But they did some sensitivity analyses, yeah. which uh, we've discussed before, um, and there was no effect. And the trial was terminated early. Um, so Because they found a benefit. Because, because they found a benefit. benefit. Right. Yep. And, and they, 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 they um, determined that the cost of this particular intervention would be about a dollar per course, and that the number needed to treat one serious, uh, uh, probable serious bacterial infection would be about twenty-seven dollars. Um, twenty-seven cases would needed to be um, treated in order to avert one real serious infection. So that's where we are. So, so in essence, a, a large trial, forty-five hundred kids, double-blind, randomized trial, um, with a placebo, with a placebo on a on a really serious infection. Um, you know, it sounds like, and, and good 
baseline balance in terms of randomization. You know, sounds like good news. Chris, what's your what's your take? Mm-hmm. Well, all three of us uh, have spent a lot of our our careers trying to figure out sort of low cost, effective ways of reducing childhood mortality, uh, including neonatal mortality, and um, you know, this study didn't actually find an effect on, on death. So let's be very clear about that. When, when you break down their, their endpoints, they had four deaths in the control arm and six deaths in the symbiotic. So they had, in fact, no impact on mortality. And, it, and we would have expected 112 deaths among neonates based in this on pati- it based on, in this particular population based on published information on neonatal based on death, the background. Ra- death rates yeah yeah so, so it's I, kind of surprising actually that the mortality rate is so, so low. low well that i think that in part is explained by all those exclusion criteria that i talked about before so i i, I guess my 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 basic take is that we we are all philosophically aligned on on our deep desire to find effective low-cost interventions that would significantly reduce mortality in very poor uh, country settings like like this part of rural India, which apparently, according to the authors, has the highest rate of neonatal mortality in all of India. So um, I would love this to be true, but I, I have to say I'm 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 very skeptical. You have some skepticism. I have some skepticism. I'm, I'm not quite sure I buy it, and and I, I had trouble really putting my finger on it um, as I was reading it, except for the fact that it just felt like it was too, you know, I know this sounds trite, but it was almost too good to be true. Um, mm, and and yeah. l- let me go into that because... Um, uh, well, can I just ask, does that yeah. make you doubt the finding or do you think it just means you think the finding is exaggerated? It's a heavy lift, is, is I guess what I'm saying. You know, Carl Sagan used to say, and I don't think he was the first one to say it, but like extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof, which by the way is, is kind of an encapsulation of Bayes' theorem. Right. Mm-hmm. That if you yeah. if you start with Absolutely. a very low pretest probability of something being true, you need tremendous evidence to, you know, to flip that over into the very likely to be true. So I would start at at the you know, my baseline pretest probability that adding in one species of bacteria to the microbiome, the complex microbiome of an infant would reduce sepsis by 50 percent. I would I would have predicted that the probability of that being true was really small yeah. because it's it to me, it's, it's it feels like firing a pea shooter at, a, at the Titanic. Right, you know, the, the the gut has got thousands and thousands of organisms. That like, why would adding Lactobacillus, you know, species X, change that in even such in a radical? Even in a neonate. Even in a neonate, why would it change that so profoundly? Um, so I, I I find that you know the the scientific premise behind it to be difficult to explain. Um, and then on top of that, we have a history of studies of probiotics which have not shown uh, benefit in terms of reducing mortality. The, the one exception where I think the evidence is somewhat persuasive is that for extremely premature infants who often suffer this terrible condition called necrotizing enterocolitis, which is believed to be caused by bacteria attacking the intestinal wall and causing perforations and sepsis, that for that small you know, for that subset of, of premature infants, that probiotics do have uh, seem to have a, a protective effect. But in those same studies, they have not found that premature infants are protected against neonatal sepsis. And so, this study is really an outlier in terms of finding this you know this very profound effect mm-hmm. in a group that is outside of the traditional high, high risk groups where sepsis is, is is concentrated. And so, that feels. You know, it raises some some flags for me in terms of like why why would this work when so many else of other studies have have have, have foundered? Um, 
then I start to see, you know, so once I'm, I start with this, my skepticism, I start to think about the data and, and like, what, is it, what does it say in terms of the expected patterns we see in this population? And you already raised the one, which is the, where are these, these sepsis deaths occurring? So if you look at, at review articles of neonatal sepsis, the distribution of neonatal sepsis events occurs predominantly in the first week of life. So mm-hmm. 50% of all neonatal sepsis is between day zero and seven, and then 25% and 25% are in weeks two and three, respectively, and then the rest is over the next six months, basically. And these and th- were all excluded? These children were systematically excluded, for one thing, because they, they removed them during day zero and two. But then the sepsis events that did occur were in exactly the opposite pattern from what the epidemiologic suggests, where they found that um, 3% of their sepsis events were in weeks one, and 14% were in weeks two and three, which is exactly the opposite of what you would anticipate to see. Um, and then the neonatal mortality rate, as Don said, is, is um, I mean, this is great, but astonishingly low. Mm-hmm. We had what? It's one-tenth it's one ten, tenth of what we would expect. Ten deaths out of 4,500 Instead infants. Instead of 112. In Zambia, we expect 40 per thousand uh, in the first month. Yeah, it's 25 so, per thousand in so, this population. So we would have thought, okay, so 25 per thousand. So we would have expected 100 deaths, right. 150 deaths in this population. Where are they? Why not? Why ten instead of one hundred and fifty? And so, what's what's your supposition? So it makes me feel that somehow the the population was um, uh, selected in a way that introduced some bias here. No, I wouldn't say bias there. If it, it has to do with the way the population was selected, it gets to generalizability. Well, maybe maybe that's a better way of saying it. Generalizability. So it, it doesn't seem like a representative sample that that, that describes the typical neonatal sepsis cohort. Yeah, and that me. could be because of the exclusion criteria, as Don says. That could be because. Um, these kids were getting such good care, right? Uh, you know, exceptional care, different yeah, from what they would get as standard of care somebody, normally. Somebody was coming by every day for sixty days, and 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 affirming that they were either well or not well. Yeah, so, so that's 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 not normal. So another thing that that kind of caught my attention that sort of gets to the the plausibility of this result is um, the kinds of, of endpoints that they, or the differences in the endpoints that they saw. Specifically, um, there was this striking reduction in lower respiratory tract infection, which is basically what we would call pneumonia. Uh, how would changing the intestinal microbiome significantly affect pneumonia rates? I suppose it could, but it, it seems unlikely mm-hmm. because it's the wrong organ system. Mm-hmm. So I, I, you know, this is lower tract. Uh, you know, the and Lactobacillus species is going to mainly affect bacteria that live in the small intestine and the large intestine, and less have of an effect on the upper intestinal tract, and really almost no impact on the upper respiratory tract. Respiratory tract. So how do you have a reduction in pneumonia? That mm-hmm. seems odd. And stranger still was this reduction in this condition called omphalitis. O m p h a l i t i s, which my wife also causes awful itis, which is an infection of the umbilical stump where, mm-hmm. where it was, the cord was cut. And those were reduced by almost 80%. And I can think of no possible way that yeah, ingesting nope. lactobacillus, well, I'd like to hear it, but I can't, I couldn't think of any way that you can get from lactobacillus in the intestine to changing the skin flora of the umbilical cord. I, I don't see that leap, and yet no? that was what, the most profound effect of all in this study. It was was reduction of oh, the much rarer outcome. So. In, indeed, but still, it, it, it struck in me as odd. Same thing with skin abscesses, which I don't see the link between you know Don, what do you got? gut infections and this. And yeah, I mean, if if you're if you're um, inducing a substitution of the um, possibly pathogenic organisms in the intestines with a beneficial organism, and a, a child's pooping, and you know, it's not necessarily something that is very totally clean and, and located, it's 
to me, com- to perfectly conceivable that there could be some contamination of the umbilical stump while the child is, you know, is is defecating or while the diaper is being changed or, or something like that. So it's it's a possibility. It's a possibility, but I, I, mean, I take your point that it, it I, I could see... There's some pathway that might lead to that, but it doesn't seem. This is not what I would have expected as mm-hmm. the most likely impact of taking an oral think, preparation of yeah, probiotics. Yeah, but I think omphalitis is oftentimes gram, uh, infection is, is due to gram negative bacteria. So and also it, staph, and or staph, right? Yeah. But um, you know, and and a lot of times it's you know it's, it's sort of those gram negative groin organisms. So efficient to say that that for all of these reasons. I, I came away feeling like I would love this to be true, and and yet my sense of skepticism was pretty mm-hmm. high. Mm-hmm. And and at that point, I start to look for like you know, well, you know, the 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 trial appears to have been done well and cleanly and Agreed. rigorously. And yep. but where what what would be the kinds of mistakes that might occur in the conduct of you know well intentioned mistakes? I'm not talking about any kind of. Of, of intentional manipulation of the data, but what are the kinds of things that, that go wrong in, in randomized controlled trials that could possibly lead to bias in the outcomes? And and the one that um, struck me the most is this issue of blinding. And, and of course, we're not talking about blinding the infants who are, you know, they, they don't need to be blinded. What I'm talking about is whether the people who are assessing the health status of the infants, the these, these health workers who came by every single day to observe the children's health, whether there was some way that they could have figured out who got the lactobacillus versus the placebo capsule concoction. And um, in the methods, they say, you know, the two of them were indistinguishable by, you know, visually and by taste. Mm -hmm. And yet, um, when we did that stent trial, one of the things we loved about that trial is that they they canvassed the the doctors and the patients to see could they tell who got what, and they couldn't tell. Whereas here, I would really like to know, you know, the the placebos were basically maltodextrin, which is a very, very, very sweet Mm -hmm. uh, sugar. Uh, compared with this lactobacillus mixed with these oligofructose. So, in fact, if we were given two glasses of this, would they taste equally sweet? Would they look identical? Would they have the same smell? That is all just claimed that it was perfectly you know, equal. But and you, yet if it was not, that's where but that, but you could get some ascertainment bias or some observer bias creeping into this. But you're presupposing that the mother would be tasting it, not, not the child necessarily. Because no, I'm, the child, talking about, I'm talking about the, the observers who were preparing these um, preparations for the, the mom each day. But I, th- I believe I, that, that was they prepared only did the centrally. First day. Yeah, I think they only, they, oh, I don't know about the preparation, but they, it was administered by the observer the first day. Yeah. And then after that, by the But mother, all they need to know is figure it out once. Yeah. You know, all they would need to do is figure it out once. And then, and then you have the tendency to find more events in the control than in the... In yeah, the I mean, I think we should, we should say that's, that's obviously complete speculation. We have no idea... Absolutely. But I, I, I will say I, I shared some of your skepticism, maybe not to the same degree, but my, my, what I wrote down here in my notes was, this is a big, well-conducted trial, and yet I want to see another one. Same I'd here. like to see some confirmation of this. And I think one of the things that, you know, in addition to the things that you mentioned is this was a trial that was stopped early. And one of the things that we know about trials that stopped early is on average, they tend to overestimate effect sizes. It could be that just the, the, the size of the effect was large by chance and that these two curves would have come back together. There still probably would have been a benefit, but that the benefit is overstated due to the fact that the trial was stopped early. Right. Um, there was also a little bit of differential loss to follow up. I don't know if you noticed that. I didn't. So there were, there were 76 dropouts in the control group and 112 in the case group, in the intervention group. So not a startling difference, startling, but, but, yeah. but enough when you're talking about a relatively rare outcome like, like sepsis, could that have hidden some, um, some events? Yeah. 
Well, so I mean, Don, you want the the last word? Do you share the the skepticism that that Chris and I have? I should say I'm skeptical. I don't I don't mean to imply that I don't think it's a real effect. I mean, this is, I from what I can tell, a large, well conducted trial. So I'm not trying to say that I believe there's anything sort of glaringly wrong. And yet at the same time, I just I, I'd want to see another one before I really believe the size of the effect. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I feel the same with um, that. Both you and Chris feel that I, I really would like the study to to um, be accurate. I'd really like to, to find some sort of silver silver bullet like this. I mean, it's it's really the you know uh, if, if true would be a very important important finding, um, and I'm not sure how they could do it better other than by including some of the children who were excluded because that's really the majority of the burden. Because if you have probable serious probable seri- Serious bacterial infection, which is a soft finding, even though the WHO has, has developed an algorithm, it's the best that we have. It's still a, a soft finding. The, the 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 really important issue here is death, you know. And if you have transient, possible serious bacterial infection, and it goes away on its own, then it oftentimes leaves no long-term damage. And so it's almost kind of, well, does it really matter that much? Um, so I think really to have a major impact on global health, th- this study really should be repeated and they should exclude almost n- none of the kids to yeah. see if in fact, I mean, you know, it's, 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 I can understand why they did it and it's, and, and it's, con- it's conceivable that it's hard to conceive that this particular intervention would have any effect whatsoever on an on an incipient bacterial case a case of bacterial sepsis. Um, you mean once it's already started? Once it's cannot... already started, it's hard to imagine how this could actually work. And 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 the rationale for it being a prophylaxis against the development of, I think, makes a lot of sense. But nonetheless, I think it would be important to include it. And yeah. they might come up with exactly the same findings, yep. but so, with all, all these kids excluded. Sounds like we're all we're all completely agreed yep. that this is this is a, a you know a provocative finding, and and we'd love to see it replicated before we're willing to yeah to Put say it goodbye. Into policy, yeah. 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 And and I like to see it with a mortality outcome. Yep. yep, I agree. All right, well, let's move on then to our second segment. And in our second segment, I'm, this is a, an article that Chris found that we found interesting enough that we wanted to talk o- about it. And the question is, you know, over the, let's say, past decades, there appears to be a proliferation of journals, which makes theoretically, if there are more journals, there's more opportunities for people to be publishing Uh, articles that you might have once upon a time not been able to get published. There now is probably a journal out there that will accept it. And the question is, does that, has that led to uh, people publishing more and more papers Uh, or has that led to, and, and, and not necessarily in a good way. In other words, have people been dividing up their work into smaller chunks to get more publications out of it? Salami slicing. What they referred to in this article as salami slicing. So the, the article itself was, was an article in, Plus one, it was entitled Researchers' Individual Publication Rates Has Not Increased in a Century, which um, there are uh, uh, some people, some journals won't allow you to put the finding in the title. Um, this obviously is one that will. And it was written by Danielle Finelli and Vincent La Riviere. And Chris, this was one that piqued your attention. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand it over to you to give us a little bit more detail as to what they did. 
Mm-hmm. I'm always astonished when when you hear some very famous person coming to give a seminar and they you know they get up and say you know Dr. So and so from the University of blah 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 who did his training here and there and has all these awards and has published 799 papers to yep. date and it is only 39. I'm like and I, I feel like I'm shrinking into my seat feeling inadequate. Mm-hmm. Like how does anyone publish 799 articles? Chris, your, like your seven papers are great. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I'm feeling very humble. Uh, and and so you you know, you, you see these extraordinary statistics and wonder how mere mortals could ever possibly get there. And this is kind of what they're getting at, is that if you if you look over time at the number, the average number of papers published by researchers over 15, over actually over the first 15 years of their research careers, you'll see that there is a, a linear increase in publications over time. Um, across and, all different disciplines, you know, physical sciences, social sciences, medical sciences. And whatever. how do we know that? Uh, they, made, they did this analysis um, of 45,000 researchers uh, who, had, who were publishing, who were identified through the web of science. And then they followed their first publication and then tracked them forward to see how many papers they published. Cumulatively? Cumulatively, yeah. Over 15 years. Over 15 years. year period. So looking years. at that, the, basically the, um, the, the rate, early investigator the, era. Uh, the rate per year? The, the 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 total number of papers, yeah, published by authors over time, so they could see that each because year it would, it would always go up. I, you know, if you're productive, it's yeah, like, but oh, it's, it's the rate, it's the rate per year, okay. or, not or, the cumulative or number. At the okay. end of 15 years, what's the total? Okay, yeah, and so what it seems is that that, that over time. Um, you know, researchers are publishing on average more and more papers per year than per birth cohort. Per birth cohort, right? Per, exactly. Um, per or, or researcher an, or an individual researcher adjusted right. forward, like you know, in in their year 90, 1991, they're publishing average is two point three, and in their year nineteen ninety seven, they're publishing on average you know ten point two papers. But sort of marching that forward and adjusting for when they started, you see that there seems to be a hyper productivity of each successive generation of, of, of researchers. But at the same time, there's a linear increase in the number of co-authors on every paper. Yep. And so you start to wonder if this is just a big game of everybody citing everybody else on everybody else's paper. And what was not the ca- citing, what, not what, citing, including, including them on, on the author co-authors. as co-authors. Yeah. And what, what was the period of time? What, what years was this? Starting in around 1990, and I think going to 2013. No, no, no. So, so the, the data set they originally had goes from 1900. Oh, sorry, way back. But 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 they mainly focused on 1980 through the present. 80? 80. Yeah. Because that's when they felt like they were, you know, it was a reasonable period of time to observe this increase. And, you know, of course, they, they had an, an, an extraordinary size data set to, to work with. I actually jotted this down because I was kind of struck by it. So they had 41,000 authors, each followed for the first 15 years of their careers, sort of corresponding to the early, you know, investigator stage of every researcher. This led to 1.2 million papers by a total of 534,000 authors. And so the average number of papers uh, uh, had gone from around like zero to one uh, circa uh, 1900. Zero to one per per year. year. uh, To between two and seven and around basically around five per year now. Um, but the corresponding uh, number of co-authors on the articles had also ballooned. So what they did is they adjusted for the number of co-authors on the paper and really sort of, you know, lasered down to focus on the first author position. You know, first, second, and final are the most important papers in in medical journals. Positions. Uh, positions. The first, second, are the most important places on an authorship list in, in medical publications. But they for this, they just focus on the first, because the first author is, is generally considered to be the one who, who led the analysis and wrote 
the paper. So it's like the guy who actually wrote the paper is the first author. Yep. Everyone else contributed in various ways to varying degrees. But the one you most care about is like the most, you know, the, the, the keyboard time invested in writing a paper is that first author's plot. And when you adjust for all the, the, the presence of co-authors, like being included is a list of like, you know, 42 authors on a paper. When you cut that down and just look at the first authors, the actual productivity of researchers has not increased whatsoever. That we're just as productive as, as we, we ever were, were, but we get more publications. But we get more publications because, because we're sharing the authorship with many people, and in, and it, it, it's padding, a reciprocal relationship. We're padding our CVs, is what yeah. you're saying. In a way, that's a, that's basically what it's saying, and that that in fact we are just kind of treading water in terms of our ability to ourselves right. sit down and think of smart things to say and write. So, Don, the obvious question to you is, why are you padding your CV? <laughs> I mean, what's, your, what, what, what's your reaction to this? I mean, is, is it this is this a bad thing necessarily? I'm 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 not sure that I really believe it for one thing. I mean, I, I I believe I believe the numbers. I believe what you're saying, but I do Finale's saying. But I do think that the context has changed. I think that science has become more complex. Science has become more collaborative. A lot of projects are done um, with multi uh, in a multi center fashion. With, um, like, for instance, my experience on a, on a pneumonia study, which was involved seven different sites and, and an executive committee. And there was a tremendous amount sure. of intellectual input put into, into all of the, all of the, uh, the, the design of this and, 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 um, and uh, implementation of the study, as well as the analysis. And there are many, many papers being written from that one effort. Now, there's, there, there are senior authors that are in part responsible for getting the grant. Um, and coming up with um, the, the, the conception. And a lot of times in, in situations like that, the first authors are the ones who write the first draft, but they're, they're, they tend to be sort of the, the younger members of the team because I think that there's this conception among uh, a lot of us that what we want to do is we want to um, enhance the, the, um, the, the, the career of some of, the, some of our younger colleagues. So I, I think that there's that dynamic going on. Um, and I think that that one has to take that into consideration. And being somebody who was involved in science and was publishing papers back in 1990 and, and, and the late eight, 1980s, um, I can, you know, from personal experience, say that science has become much bigger, much more collaborative, and, and many, more, many more sites. So I don't think that it's, a, it's, it's, it's I think, the, you know, the, the circumstances have changed over time. Yeah, you know, and, and, and in defense of, of your position, that, that's pretty much what they say, too. They're not, they're not stating that this is a, a negative thing, that people are, are, are padding their resumes by, you know, being on the sort of corporate authorship list, what they're what they're saying is that there's a prevailing belief that a lot of this sort of you know ballooning you know volumes of of, of publications on your CV is because we're salami slicing or mm -hmm. or writing kind of trivial puff pieces or mm -hmm. repeating our analyses you know in, in multiple mm -hmm. contexts, basically salami. saying the same thing. salami slicing. Right, the smallest publishable unit is the size of the paper. That's <laughs> what they're they're going for. They they actually are, are saying not saying that that's the case at all. They think uh -huh. that that the the paradigm of science has changed. Uh, in the way that you're describing, and that there is a legitimate growth in the number of publications because of this sort of uh, collaborative large team structure. Um, and that's fine. Uh, what they're, I think they're more interested in is, is you know, how, one is how do we address the question of, of like these sort of super, superhuman researchers who publish, you know, 700 papers plus, where you think like, ah, do they ever sleep? How, how does any more mortal do that? Yeah. They're saying actually they don't. 
That, so that's the first answer. Nobody does that. They, they, the number of first authors by these sort of mega superstars, with the possible exception of John Ioannidis, who apparently does write all of, you know millions of papers, um, is, is most of us are, are in fact mere mortals. But that the um, the driving force behind this is the change in the scientific culture, mm-hmm. uh, and. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think I come down somewhere in between the two of you. I mean, I, the the you're right. I agree with you, Don, that that science has changed and it's become more collaborative. But at the same time, these large projects that um, people pool together from lots of sites tend to produce lots and lots of data, and therefore there are lots there there are therefore theoretically more opportunities to get more first authored publications out of them. And yet the number of first authored publications has stayed the same. So to me, that suggests that while there, there is more data, there is a little bit more of um, getting your name onto something just because of, of a role that you played that wasn't necessarily leading anything. Now that's, that isn't necessarily a bad thing as I, as, as you point out and it, but, and it isn't necessarily CV padding, but at the same time, you, I would have expected both should be happening, mm-hmm. that you should have more papers in total, but you should also have more first authored papers because you have more opportunities I, I think than that, you used to. I think that as you, if, if you were to include corresponding and senior authorship in that particular analysis, I think that you would find that it would increase. Maybe, except that remember, these are they, they intentionally looked only at the first 15 years of publication, specifically because they wanted to focus on a period of time when people were junior, they had more impetus to publish, but they probably would have been less often in the senior author. That's a good spot. point, but I think but, there, I think there's also a tendency for um, for um, researchers when they get a grant to try and maximize the output as much as possible. So rather than get a grant for one study and write one paper about that one study, um, it's a natural inclination by on, on all our parts to try to maximize it and and to write other papers. And in in that instance, even if it's it, you know within the the second half of your first 15 years, if you got the grant, you're either going to be first author or you're going to give it to somebody else and you're going to be senior author mm-hmm. on that. So, mm-hmm. so yeah. I think you really, I guess I take issue yeah. with the, with the implication of what first author actually means. Mm. I think that it, it's fluid. I, I, I don't, I don't think that the first author necessarily always means that this is the person that put the majority of the effort intellectual effort right. into that particular... So, Chris, last so word to you, Chris. Well, I was going to say, what, what, do you, what do you think it, it means then to be first author in the, in the new era? I, I, I think that the, the first author is, in my experience, is, is the person who obviously has been very involved in the study, but is the person who is responsible for writing the first draft of the paper. And then it's, you know, then it's a, it's, it's a, it's a collaborative effort. It, not always. You know, sometimes the first author takes on, you know, does soup to nuts um, in, in these instances. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well last, last word then. I, I think, you know, we need to be circumspect uh, and humble in interpreting productivity metrics like the you know citation index or the H index or just the number of papers you 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 put out as a you know really valid measure of your productivity i think you know you won based on this article you could you could make the argument that if you if you put out two or three first author papers a year and nothing else you are in you know you are actually on par largely uh, with people who have 15 or 20 articles uh, published a year where they are first author on two. Mm. Um, yep. That, you know, th- you have to be, be careful about what, how you're counting, what, what the denominators that you're counting, because it does make a difference. Let, let me just say one other thing. As, as a member of the Appointments and Promotions Committee here at Boston University School of Public Health... W- w- look at him, look at him name w- drop. Or- we... We t- <laughs> prestige dropping. Shall I cross well, your palm with silver <laughs> <dome>? <laughs> What's your price? 
<laughs> the point being that we do take into consideration second and senior authorship um, almost as uh, as much as first authorship. Yeah. Okay. Good to know. All right. Well, we're going to move on. We are going to move to our amazing and amusing segment where we want to highlight some of the things that make us really enjoy our jobs. Don's waving his arm. Apparently, that means he wants to go first. Yeah. All right, Don, take it away. So um, I've got a paper um, that relates very specifically to um, the first segment of this um, podcast where we talked okay. about um, the symbiotic effect, preventative effect. Symbiotics. Symbi symbiotics. Yep. Um, and this is a paper by uh, Raquel, Rubia, Raquel Rubio, Anna Joffrey, Belen Martin, and Margarita Garriga in food microbiology. And I'm not going to talk about the paper. I'm simply going to read the title. Food microbiology. Food microbiology. Okay, hold on. Let this, me brace myself. This, is, this is, was published in 2014. The title is Characterization of Lactic Acid Bacteria Isolated from Infant Feces as Potential Probiotic Starter Cultures for Fermented Sausages. Say what? <sighs> Wow. 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 <laughs> Food microbiology. That's a real wow. thing? That is... There's sausage. First of all, what's a fermented sausage? So many questions here. What's, so, a, what's a fermented sausage? Uh, I don't is know. This... I didn't read the article. <laughs> <laughs> nor, nor do you need to. It all just really reminds us we don't want to know how they make the sausages. Oh, no. <laughs> we don't want to know how okay. they make the sausages. All right. Oh, that case, wait a second. That's facially. Chris, over to you. Oh. No, I, no, you, 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 you. <laughs> that's terrible. You're lact lact you're no, lactobacillus strain were evaluated for their ability to grow in vitro in the processing conditions of fermented sausages and for what? their functional and safety properties, including antagonistic activity against foodborne pathogens. Really? Fermented is this like kombucha sausages? <laughs> I have only ever had kimchi. Kimchi sausages. I have only ever had kombucha once, and as they say in Johnny Dangerously, I had fermented kombucha once. Once. <laughs> Chris, what well, do you got? Um, so I have been reminded on a number of occasions by my wife and our former uh, chair. Pick up your socks. Uh, to There are many things that she reminds me to do. One of, one of them is that she, she reminds me that I'm, I'm very obvious in uh, revealing my emotions in public spaces. Like when I'm annoyed about something, you could really tell. Mm -hmm. John, yeah. John Simon used to say this too. Like when we would have a seminar on Tuesdays and some guy would come in and like start spouting out a nonsense and I would turn bright red and start scratching my head. Mm -hmm. And he'd like give me a big elbow and say, stop that. Yep. You know, we know you hate it, but shut up. You know, and I was like, I didn't say anything. And he's like, yeah, but everyone can tell. Uh, so this article, when it came across my desk, just um, smiled to me. And it is called Facial Color is an Efficient Mechanism to Visually Transmit Emotion oh. by Carlos F. Benitez Quiroz and his esteemed colleagues Srinivasan and Martinez in the Proceedings of the National Academies of Sciences. And they wanted to ask the question, are there, in addition to like, you know, facial expressions, which clearly transmit emotion non-verbally, are there um, changes in blood flow to different parts of the face and the ears and the forehead that connote different emotions. Like blushing? Like like blushing as opposed to turning bright red in anger. So like, or having your ears turn pink when you're embarrassed. So there are like different patterns of where you, you pink up in different circumstances related to emotions. So they were wondering whether they, there are distinct, you know, facial coloration changes that occur linked to emotion. And the answer is absolutely yes. 
Um, really? And that, that, that you can you can very clearly identify patterns that are like anger versus surprise versus you know happiness versus uh, embarrassment um, based just on 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 um, color patterns, and that these can be distinguished from the facial pattern, the facial movements that often accompany those same emotions. So controlling mm. for movement of eyebrows and you know, squinting your eyes and scowling and making little pouty faces with your lips. If you get rid of all of those, you can still tell a lot. And that if you just like show a series of images of, of individuals with different like color patterns on their faces, uh, to, um, uh, individuals who are then asked to rate what was the emotion, they, they do extremely well in, in spotting what the emotion was that was cool. linked to those. Yeah, so I was thinking it's really uh, really kind of interesting. And it is um, relatively insensitive. This is why Chris does not play poker. This is why I don't play poker. This is my tell. I'm like, telling you, you know, oh, I've got four aces. <laughs> you know, <laughs> face turns bright red, eyebrows go up. I'm like, yes. You know, everyone says like, I, I fold. <laughs> you know? <laughs> James Bond, not <laughs> Casino no. Royale. They didn't ask me to audition for that. No, part, they didn't. Know? They did not. Well, that's pretty. So cool. it was pretty cool, and it is, it is uh, relatively insensitive to um, uh, facial pigment. So uh, oh, wow. it's, it's, it's a true across all races. Hmm. So I really liked that. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. Very very cool. All right. Well, mine is from. Uh, let's see. Mine is from Science Mag. This is an article by a gentleman named Dalmeet Singh Chawla uh, entitled Great Paper, Swipe Right on the New Tinder for Preprint oh, Act. <laughs> no. So these guys, these guys at Hopkins have put together an app in which you can rate the, uh, the, the, the paper Scientific using, ability. yeah, using the same tinder swipes that you would rate a person save me a lot of time on peer reviews i'll so tell it you says that if you're if you're tired of, it really would i hadn't thought of that if you're tired of swiping left and left, right left, to approve left, or reject left. the faces of so, <laughs> other people try something else rating scientific papers paper p-a-p-r brands itself as the tinder for preprints Paper co-creator Jeff Leake, a biostatistician at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health in Baltimore, Maryland, released an earlier version late yesterday. The goal is to help researchers navigate the overwhelming number of new papers and uncover interdisciplinary overlap. So you've got this paper, and I, I uh, tried to—I couldn't actually download it. I could only find the—, the so wait, 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 wait. I don't understand. So people put their preprints of their paper up. It gets picked up by this server— service that then you can look at it and you can read the abstract and then say, you know, you can then swipe. Why, why do that? So that you can let other people know what know you what? find interesting, what they find interesting. You can bring that information together so that you're then bringing the more relevant information forward to people in the morass of uh, the overwhelming number of scientific papers. Morass is not the right word. Overwhelming number of scientific papers that are out there, and you can get the so, good stuff to to you. So presumably, uh, you would all of the all the papers that you swipe right on. If you and I have similar interests, would be would be surprisingly. I don't use Tinder, so I don't know what swipe no, right I'm, is the good one or the bad one. No, nor do I. Nor do I. <laughs> well, I, I think it's, it's just, remarkable I'm, that that none of us actually use Tinder, and yet at the lexicon of swipe right, swipe left is totally penetrated yeah, the population. Don and I don't know which one it is, whereas you appeared to know exactly when well, you were doing you your swipe left, swipe left, swipe left. Just have to. But read. left is always bad, and right is always good. So I'm just assuming uh, left, is, yeah. left is the discard pile, Except and right is the accept I mean, they have pile. T-shirts on this now. Okay. So. 
Uh, so you can. You so there's a way for me to follow the papers that you're yeah, interested yeah. in. Yeah. So it, you would swipe right for exciting and probable. You would swipe up for exciting and questionable. You would swipe down for boring and probable, and swipe left for boring and questionable. Which I thought it was pretty, pretty interesting idea. I'm not going to use it, but. Wow. It is out there in case you want to. Wow. And does the, does this then like help the journals steer papers to you I, I that don't are know. more well, relevant? Well, it's preprints. I don't know. I don't know. I think it's you could then it would serve steer more articles towards you that you're going to like. I see. So it's a way of like disseminating the information to the right readers. I think so. Mm, cool. Somebody's going to figure out how to monetize this. Yep. Yeah. All right. Yeah, so like that it. is the end of our program. If you've got any feedback on this or any other episodes, or you want to suggest. A study, or you want to just request that Chris stop drinking <laughs> beverages with ice in them during the show, you can let us know. Who does that? And the way to do that would be to tweet us at, at PopHealthyX or at me at, at ProfMattFox or at Chris at ID.Gill or, or at Don. Or swipe us left. At DThea1. Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning at BU School of Public Health. For supporting the podcast and Nick Guler for the days and days of editing that he does on each and every episode to make us sound good. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you will download our next episode. <laughs>